Welcome to another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church. No, 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 I'm good. Come on. It's good to be here with you this morning. Anytime I do meetings like this, um, I try to do three things. I try to give you something for your head and then something for your heart and something for your hands. So, and that's how I sort of think through how I do it. And I, I, and I try in the first session to do the head one first, all right, because this is when we're the freshest. And um, so I've got something um, brand new that, um, that I've, just, I've just finished writing and I want to run it by you um, because... I got caught doing something, and, um, and, and the, the good thing is, is, that, is that I got caught by a friend, and if you're going to get caught, if you're going to get caught doing something, not, I want to get caught by a friend who, who, will, who won't tell everybody, and who will walk with you, right, and so, and here's what I got caught doing, and maybe you've never done this, but I definitely did this, and it was not good, I, I used a throwaway line at the end of a sermon, because my mind went blank, and I felt weird. I couldn't think of anything to say, and very rarely does my mind go blank. But uh, but it did definitely, definitely, definitely go blank, and and so I. This is what came out of my mouth. I said, "Listen, at this church, we need to be living for the glory of God." Right now, that's a safe throwaway line because it shouldn't be a throwaway line, right? So so it's a safe throwaway line in the sense that if somebody took you seriously, it's not going to harm them. Um, but my <clears throat> but my friend was in the front row, and. Afterwards, after it all calmed down, we were, we were chatting, and he said, that's not you. And I said, what? He goes, Shane Willard does not use throwaway lines. And I said, oh, come on. I said, I, you know. I said, it was true. He goes, of course it's true. We should live for the glory of God. He said, but what does that even mean? And I said, oh, well, to live for the glory of God means that as you're living, you're giving God glory. And he went, <laughs> he said, Exactly. He said, he said, you're out of language. And if you're out of language, what do you think's happening to all of us who try to process that? He said, do your thing. He said, that needs to be fleshed out. He said, you felt like it was a throwaway line. He said, but what I think happened is God threw something into the air, and now you got to go work it out what that even means, right? And so... <clears throat> and so um, you need friends like that because he is a good friend of mine, and he was trying to make me better. Like, he wasn't... He wasn't being a pedantic jerk. He was, try, he was trying to make me better. And so, and so I, I sat down with my team, and I, I, put together, I put together this thought on what it means to live for the glory of God. And, and, and I've put some practical things at the end um, to, to, for you to test yourself on your churches and where are we actually. Because that's something no one can disagree with. If I say, we need to live for the glory of God, no one could go, no, we need to be more self-serving. No, you just don't, wouldn't do that. But, but let's be honest, and I'm in a room full of pastors, and I love talking to pastors because that means I'm under absolutely no pressure to be an evangelist, right? Because I'm not a great one. Um, but is, 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 for us, we would all want to live for the glory of God. But if I pushed you on language, if I said, what does that mean? How, how, how long before we run out of language? And so my goal in the first session is to give us some language around that, to trace some thoughts through Scripture. So, so first, a, a lesson quickly on how truth works, okay? So this is how, this is how truth works. I'm going to give you two thoughts on this. And once again, my goal is not to be right. My goal is to put language that maybe we can, we, we can work. All right, so truth, anytime we say God, the Bible, Scripture, Jesus, the Spirit. Now we're using words like that. We're talking about truth. 
And the way truth works is truth has to be discussed in a Trinitarian structure, all right? So in other words, it has, it has three elements to it. The, the first element is the literal, okay, so the, or the objective. So something happened. And when I say literal, I don't mean it was necessarily concrete. I, I, I'm Like, for instance, stories in the Bible that aren't meant to be read literally, but you can take it in terms of truth, it's literal because somebody told story is all I'm saying, right? So, so like if I took you to Israel and, and you asked the historian, take me to the farm where the father of the parable of the prodigal son lived, he would think, what? Don't be silly, right? But somebody told that story. Jesus told the story, so that's the literal. So the, the story is something that happened. But, but then the next step to it is the symbolic or the meaning. All right, so the symbolic or the meaning. And, and oftentimes, well, yeah, most of the time, the symbolic is bigger than the literal. So somebody asked me the other day in a Q&A, I get, I get asked to do these Q&As all over the world now for people under 30, and they bring all their objections about the Bible, right? And, and somebody, and it's, it's fun. I actually really, really enjoy it as long as there's certain rules around it. Um, but somebody asked me, Shane, do you believe that the cross and resurrection um, are just symbolic, or, or, or do you think they're literal? And, I, and my response to that was, because was, they were being sincere, my response to that was, was well, that's, that's a foolish way to ask the question because if you're going to say just, you have to say, is it just literal? Because, because just li- symbolic is always bigger than literal. There's always more meanings than actually what happened. I said, so are you actually asking me, is the cross and resurrection just literal? And he went, yes. I said, good. The answer is no, because there's a lot of meanings around that, right? And so, and so the truth of it is, it's, it's sort of like this. Um, um, if, somebody, if we walked outside for morning tea or wherever we're having it, and someone had an Aussie flag and was burning it and stepping on it, would you be upset? Yeah, why? It's just thread and cloth, right? See, if, if the Aussie flag is just literal, then there's no reason to be upset about somebody stepping on cloth. But what we're actually upset about is all the meanings that, that, that are behind that. And so, and so let's take something even like serious. Let's take something like resurrection, which we all believe wholeheartedly in. Resurrection, are we just concerned in the literalness of the resurrection? I, I, I don't think so, because if all you're concerned about is whether Jesus literally rose, then why not just worship Lazarus? I mean, he rose first, but, but there's no such thing as a Lazarene or a Lazarite, right? It's like, why? Because we know, we know that the meanings behind the resurrection is, is, is where all the action is. Now, do we affirm the literalness of the resurrection? Yes, but there is a way that you could dedicate your whole life to proving that Jesus literally rose. And let's say you could do it in such a way that it would stand up at the Supreme Court of Australia and still miss the point of all the meanings of it, right? So, so you got literal, and then you have the symbolic or the meaning and then past that is the third step, and that's the eventual nature of it, right? So in, in other words, uh, let's go back to resurrection. Resurrection has a literal objective aspect to it, but it has infinitely more meanings. Like, death doesn't get the last word. Like, if you were wrong about death, what else could you be wrong about? Like, new creation could burst forth in the middle of this one. Like, you can have new birth, fresh start, second chances. Like, Jesus come back to the earth to fix it, so every kind word matters, everything you do. You do realize that we deny the resurrection all the time. We deny the resurrection every time we step over a hungry person 
person that we could help. We deny the resurrection every time we could meet a need and we choose not to instead. So we say, oh, we believe in the resurrection, yeah, but we deny it with our life. And that's a whole nother problem, right? So, so you got the literal resurrection, then you have the meaning. But the eventual nature is this. The, an event, philosophically, is not something that happened. Philosophically, an event is something that happened that fundamentally shifts the way you see every other happening after that, right? So the resurrection should not just be a doctrine on a bullet point on a pamphlet that we affirm. The resurrection should actually be a worldview in the sense that the resurrection should fundamentally shift the way we see all other events after that. It's sort of like this. See if I can illustrate it this way. If your wife has a baby, and it's a girl, and here it comes, there's the baby girl, right? And the doctor cleans it off and hands it to you. And you're, you're standing there holding that baby, right? That's the literal. The baby is, oh, there's a breathing flesh and blood thing here, right? The symbolic or the meaning would be, you, maybe you would say something like this, oh, she's the most beautiful girl in the whole world. Now, what if someone was standing next to you and said, really? Prove that literally. You wouldn't even know what to say because that's not how that language works, right? Like, it, what if the person said, actually, there's going to be a lot of girls that are prettier than her, and there's going to be a lot of girls that are uglier than her. She's sort of going to be in the middle eventually. What you should be saying is, oh, she's the most average-looking girl in the whole world, right? <clears throat> right? But hey, that, that's, that's why these mugs that say world's best dad, they make no sense. There should only be one of them, but yet their store's full of them, right? But be, because, because the reason is, is because we're not using literal language around meaning things, Right, right. But then, but then, the birth of a child should also be eventual, right? So, so let's say, let, let's say that every night um, you throw darts and drink a pint with your friends, right? No, nothing particularly destructive. You throw darts and drink one pint, right? So that, that's how you do it, right? That's your life. Throw darts, drink a pint. Throw darts, drink a pint, right? Then, then your wife has a baby. And you're like, oh, she's the most beautiful girl in the whole world. And, and then you bring her home. on your way home. And oh, oh let's, let's say it this way. Let's say in the same hospital room, the hospital's crowded, and, and there's another woman having a baby at the exact same time. And the exact same time, they wipe the baby off. And then the exact same time, they hand the two children to the fathers. And both of them at the exact same time say, oh, she's the most beautiful girl in the whole world. Are those two people in conflict? No, because it's not about the literalness. It's, it's about it, that girl has now redefined what beauty is, right? But then let's say you go home. And on the way home, there's uh, your, your neighbor seven doors down that you've never met has blue balloons in the front yard. And it says, welcome to the world, Billy. Now, now you would assume what? That, that somebody's had a kid named Billy. And you would acknowledge the literal nature of that without it meaning anything to you. But then let's say you get home, and the first night you get home with this new baby, you go out and you throw darts and you drink a pint. Then the next night you go throw darts and you drink a pint. Then the next night you go throw darts and you drink a pint. About four nights into this, your wife says, excuse me, we have a baby now. And, and you, say, you say, I know. I 100% acknowledge the literal nature of that objective baby. And beyond that, I, I fully affirm that this baby's the most beautiful baby in the whole world. It's fundamentally changed my heart. But until it changes the way we live, that's a whole nother thing. And so as people who communicate truth, we should hold truth until we can fundamentally explain all three natures of it. Because if you remove one leg out of those truths, then the truth has less meaning than it would if you can explain all three. 
right? And so, and so my goal this morning is to, is to explore this idea of the glory of God. Um, and I want to try to do it in all three ways. Like, not just something so we could add it to our doctrinal statements, and not even just a full exploration of what it might mean, but a fundamental shift of how we see our world. So, so this is, um, if you could bring that first slide up, this is a guy named Paul, and, and he is trying to explain the cross and resurrection, and he's trying to put language around something that was fundamentally surprising. The cross was surprising. Um, nobody expected, followers of Jesus thought he was going to take over Rome. When they killed him, that was surprising. What was more surprising was resurrection. Like the, the Hebrew word for surprise and the Hebrew word for resurrection share the same root word. And that shouldn't, that, that, that makes sense, right? Because if I died today and you came to my funeral on Saturday and I showed up on Sunday, surprise sort of cuts it, right? So, so they're, they're trying to put language around this. And this is what he says. And, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross. But by the way, that, that in the first century, that was a swear word. Like, the, the, I, know, I know it's hard to kind of get our head around, but in the original language, the word staris there, the word translated cross, would have evoked a response like, oh, is he allowed to, oh, is he allowed to say that? Like, like it was, um, nobody wrote the word cross or drew a cross until 500 AD, which was 100 years after the practice was banned because it was too cruel. It, it, it would be ease of people's being tortured. You'd, it was, oh, don't say that. Oh, oh, even. So, so for him to go, point of death, oh, no, oh, even death on a cross. That was, whoa. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, so if, if you're, I want you to note that in your mind, a name that is above every name. It's going to come up here in a second again about something else. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, 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 now Paul, Paul is writing um, from jail under the rule of a guy named Nero who forced every person to call him Lord. Nero forced every person to call him Curios and Soter, Lord and Savior. So, so if you wrote Nero, you had to address him as my Lord and Savior Nero. If he wrote you, he would sign it, your Lord and Savior, Nero. He put on all these Olympic games all over the Roman Empire with forced pledges of allegiance to our Lord and Savior, Nero. So, so for Paul to write a letter from Rome and start it, grace and peace be to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not a bullet point on a pamphlet. This is an up yours, Nero. You, you're going, you're going to read this. I know you're going to read this, but I, I'm sending this out. You'll get a word here, but you're not going to get the last word. And then he keeps throwing, Jesus Christ is Lord. At the end of the book of Philippians, he, he, the last line of the book of Philippians, he says, oh, all the saints greet you in Jesus' name, especially those of Caesar's household. Like that is just, you can't <laughs> believe it. To the glory of God the Father. And so he's, he's saying something quite profound because in Paul's world, the Bible was not a static record of God. If you want to ruin the Bible, speak of it statically. Like, that is just shocking stuff. Like, God wrote it. God doesn't change. This is, this is applicable to all men and all. Like, hang on. Which part? Come on. Don't ruin the Bible. The Bible's not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive revelation of what people thought God was, leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. And God, God gave it life at each step by breathing on it. That's called inspiration. And it, I'm going to give that life because that's going to move it. 
The Bible is the word of God, but it's not the final word of God. The final word of God's the risen Christ. It's a person, right? And so, and so in the Bible, what you find is the names of God were revealed progressively. And that makes sense that they understood parts of God here that they didn't understand there. And so, so you, you, you've got, you've got uh, El Shaddai, and then you've got Yahweh. And Yahweh just means I am, which leads to the question, I am what? And then, and then they, so then they, okay, well, then they couldn't even say Yahweh. So they put the vowels of the word Adonai, Lord, between the four consonants, and it says Yehovah. And then it was like, okay, Yehovah what? Well, Rapha. Oh, is he a healer? Yes. Oh, is he a provider? Yes. Is he righteousness? Yes. Is he peace? So, so the ancient Jews thought of God as yes and. Is, it, is he that? Yes, but it's not just that. It's also this. Oh, and it's not just that. It's, oh, it's also this. Oh, it's that. Oh, does God exist? Yes, he exists, but not the way you think existence works. So it's even beyond that. Is, is God love? Yes, he's love, but bigger than what you think love might be. So it's, it's bigger than, than that. And so they, they struggled naming the divine, which... Hello, so do we. And then, and so Paul's saying that, that Jesus was given a name that was above every other name. In other words, all these other, that Jesus was the encapsulation of every name written before. And evidently, Paul is asserting that Jesus is greater than Caesar. And so there's all of this kind of stuff. And then, but then here's the key to it, to the glory of God the Father. Evidently, God exalted Jesus so that Jesus could give glory back. So, so there's, there's this idea of glory. So, so my point is, is evidently that, that, that Jesus was dying and glorifying God. So evidently Jesus glorified God in his death. And what we also find is that he glorified God in his birth. Check, check this out. Next slide. So this is Luke chapter 2. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace amongst those whom he's pleased. The, the way I memorized it in another version was, and on earth, peace and goodwill to all mankind. That, that would have made everybody, is God for all mankind? Is God not just for Jews? Is God not just for Romans? Is God, God is for all mankind. And this is from, to understand this, We've got to understand, how does the Christmas story start? Luke chapter 2, in the days of Caesar Augustus. This is, the, the, the Christmas story and all four Gospels are best understood as a competing narrative to the biographies that were rolling around around Caesar to, 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 to increase the propaganda of the imperial cult. Like one of the elements of, 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 of gospel interpretation is, is how are they presenting Jesus as a competing narrative to Caesar? Now, to understand this, let me show you a first century Roman coin. Um, so this is, this is a first century Roman coin, and, and you don't have to be a genius to see it says Caesar Augustus, right? So that's, that, that's obviously his thing. And then on the right, I'm going to talk about that for just a second. So, so this story started in 44 BC. In 44 BC, there was a guy named Julius Caesar. He was an amazing guy, combined the whole earth under one rule while inventing the salad. He was awesome. He was awesome. Now, Julius Caesar claimed to be flesh. The, 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 the ancient people uh, believed that Julius Caesar was not just a man, that he was the fully God incarnate. Uh, a one Roman historian poet said that, that in, in Julius Caesar was the fullness of the divine in bodily form and in no other name on earth by which men can be saved other than the name of Caesar. Uh, this was a guy that, um, that in, in wielded incredible power. Now, in 42 BC, um, he got stabbed in the back by his best friend, a guy named Brutus, which did damage to his God claims. God, you probably should have seen that coming right? He dies. Here's the problem. 
at his funeral, this is the mother of all coincidences, at his funeral, a strange star appeared in the sky, and it was so huge, the historian said that it lit up the sky in morning and night for seven days, which obviously is a bit of an exaggeration, because they now know what it was, and astronomers have named it Caesar's Comet. One of the things that happened was evidently a comet came so close to Earth that it lit up the sky in the day and the night. Now think about it. Before telescopes, and you're in a primitive sort of superstitious world, if, if you're at a funeral celebrating a guy you believe to be God, and a strange star appears in the sky and lights it up and is shooting across like this, what might conclusions you come to? You might come to the conclusion that this guy was God and now he is taking his seat amongst the council of the gods in the sky, which is exactly what the Roman propaganda said. So it was a guy named Octavius, but it wasn't really his son. It was actually his great nephew who saved his butt from behind enemy lines in Gaul. And Julius Caesar was so moved by this that he adopted him and made him the heir to the throne. Octavius then took on the name Caesar Augustus. And here was his logic. His logic was, if my dad was God, then that makes me the son of God. And if I'm the son of God, then I should be worshiped. So Caesar Augustus instituted a 12-day celebration of his birth. And he called it, wait for it, Advent. It was called the Advent of Caesar Augustus. And it went from December 19th to December 31st every day. And it lasted every year. And it lasted 12 days. On the first day of Christmas. <laughs> now, during Advent, he offered, he offered peace on earth the forgiveness of sins for every and a fresh start for every person who would bring him an offering. Now, how do you get that word from Spain to India with no electricity, no printing press, and town criers are highly unreliable? What you do is you print it on money. Money was the first century equivalent of a news bulletin because that would eventually make its way around. And your job as a good Roman Empire person was when the government sent you a new message, you would call the community together and read the back of the coin. Remember there's this one time in the gospel that they're trying to trap Jesus for treason, right? And they say, what do you say about paying taxes? And they've got a first century private investigator over in the bushes and he's taking video on a first century video camera, right? Right? And, and, and Jesus is like, you're trying to trap me. Jesus, remember what Jesus says? He says, oh, I don't have a coin. I, I need a coin. I need a coin, right? And everybody's, and, and, and they go, oh, oh, here's a coin. He, and he goes, whose image is on the coin? And the answer was Caesar's, Caesar's. Now, here's the problem with that. What's the second command? Don't have idols. Wait a minute. You're trying to trap me, but you're the one carrying around the image of someone that says he's God. You're violating something higher. If I were you, I would keep Caesar's what is Caesar's, but I would keep God's what is God's. Like that is like, that's like in, in the Greek there, Jesus goes, Hah! right, right. So, so, so there's this. There's this whole, there's this whole thing um, 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 going on. So Caesar had Advent coins minted, and those Advent coins, there was there were several of them. One of them said, uh, one of them said, Caesar Augustus is Lord, and then you flip it across, no other name on earth by which men can be saved. One of them said, Caesar is Lord, and he'll multiply bread for all people. 
One of them said, Caesar is Lord, and there will be peace on earth and goodwill to all men. This is a famous one here. This was called the star coin. Why would you put a star on the back of a coin declaring you Lord? Well, how did Caesar Augustus validate his son of God claims? Strange stars appearing in the sky. Remember, it says in Matthew that there was a strange star appearing in the sky and wise men from the east came and said to Herod, we are looking for the new king of the Jews. Not you, by the way. We're looking for the new king. We have seen his star. And it says, and Herod and all of Jerusalem were disturbed. Why would you be disturbed? Well, if Rome gets word that there's a new star and a new king, they're going to send in troops to try to destroy everybody. You don't want that happening. This was the star coin. And so, and so it, and around the star, I don't know if it, that's ancient Latin, but it says, God saves. God's Caesar Augustus, God saves. So this was the imperial cult. And the imperial cult um, worked under the power of Caesar Augustus and the goddess Roma, the goddess Roma. So, so later, when a guy named John is calling the ruler a great whore on a horse of seven heads, a city that Rome was called the city of seven hills, um, this is speaking metaphorically about an abstract idea of imperialism. He, they, they are just really going for the oppression because Rome promised peace, prosperity on earth, and, to, and goodwill to all men. But was that true? No, only 3% of people were really making it. And 97% of people were under the squashed foot of the Roman um, soldiers. And so, so, so Jesus, it, the, the, the Christmas story as written by Luke is essentially, is not just about God coming to earth um, and putting flesh on. It's an in your face confrontation to what was going on on the earth. It was essentially saying Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. Caesar doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. Think about Luke chapter 2, right? There's strange stars. There's heavenly hosts saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill to all mankind for unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior and his name is Christ and he is Lord. This is in your face stuff. And this would have been all over the Roman Empire. Let me show you. This is a, um, this is a, a translation of a stone structure that was erected in a city called Prien, right outside of a place called Ephesus. Um, and this, there would have been thousands of these, but they uncovered this because the Roman proconsul made uh, Caesar Augustus' birthday the new New Year, New Year's Day, because he was God. Let me show you this. This is just a, next slide. So this is just a translation of it. Come on, mate. Here we go. Shine like stars. It froze. Oh, oh here we go. Here we go. Here we go. They declared that Caesar Augustus' birthday would become the official New Year's Day of the calendar year. Here's the inscription from Priyan explaining why this is a word-for-word English translation of the stone thing in Priyan. Next slide. Here it comes. Because providence has set all things in its most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit all humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things well. And because he, Caesar, by his appearing, surpassed all previous benefactors, or names that is above, right? And leaves posterity no hope of another surpassing what he has done. 
the name that's above every name, and because the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news, that's the word gospel, for the world that came by reason of him. Jesus was glorifying God in his death, but he was also glorifying God in his birth. How was he doing it both ways? He was confronting oppression everywhere he saw it. To say we live for the glory of God means we're living to intentionally confront. Anytime, anytime we're intentionally confronting oppression, we're living for the glory of God, whatever that looks like. We're intentionally confronting oppression. But, but, but there's more. Check this out. Next, next slide. So in Greek, the word is doxa. And doxa, this is the quote from Dallas Willard, no relation to me. If the familiar becomes too familiar, it becomes unfamiliar. The, the idea, how many times do we say, oh, glory to God, oh, glory, oh, glory to God. I got caught with this, and I realized, and, and I hope we never, if familiar, it becomes unfamiliar. We lose the, the power of it. So, so the Greek word doxa finds its root in a Hebrew idea called kavod. Let me show you that. Next slide. So this is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now the word there is kavod. Now there's 80,000 words in English, 8,000 in Hebrew. So you got, you know, um, word, the kavod word is a weight or heavy or significance. The root was a rich person weighted down by his, like carrying his stuff around. Um, glory is the sense that you have to catch your breath from the heaviness of it. Like, oh, so, 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 so living for the glory of God is intentionally confronting oppression. It's also anytime we're in awe of something that we can't be certain about. That, like, like living for the glory of God is being okay, being in awe, despite still having mystery. And it's, 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 may we never lose the opportunity to be in awe of what God is doing at the altar of heaven to figure it all out. That's living for the glory of God. Let's say it another way. Next slide. Kavod is when you look at the stars and realize how small you are. Like the, the opposite would be thinking of ourselves as larger because uh, kavod can't be viewed in its full. The, the best we could see is where it's been. It's amazing. Like if, if there's a clear night, and I am not an astronomer, but I've had people who are really into it tell me these things. Like, there's certain stars that are like 130,000 light years away. And, oh, that one, that's 130,000 light years away. Oh. You know what that means? That means that what we're seeing now happened 130,000 years ago. Some of them are further away than that. Some of them are like, like they, they were talking the other day, some, they'd found some sort of galaxy that's like 3.2 billion light years away. In other words, what they were seeing was actually 3.2 billion years old coming. Like that, like that, that's kavod. That kind, oh, oh, the God, the, the, the God that hung that in its place. Oh, that, that, that is, be, can we be in all of that in spite of not being able to figure all that out? That, that's, that's the glory of God. The, the, the glory of God is being able to celebrate healing despite not understanding it. That's the, that's the glory of God. Like, because would you rather see someone healed or would you rather understand how it, how it works? Well, I'd rather see him healed. If I can, it would be better. But honestly, I, I, I'm okay. Just I would rather see someone set free than under. I would rather be caught up in worship than understand how, the, how that works. It's, it's, it's being okay being in awe despite of not being able to understand it. Let, let, let's, say, let's say it this way. Ne next slide. Uh, we only know part of kavod by reminding ourselves of how small we are. Um, like if, if we lose that, the, the, if we lose that sense of kavod, we lose something about what it means to be human. We start to step into roles and responsibilities that aren't ours to take. 
Uh, it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. Maybe, maybe we can say it this way. Next slide. Um, we tend to worship at the altar of the fad, but we long to worship at the altar of the fixed, right? So, so we tend to worship at, at the altar of things that come and go. The, the way the ancient Jews describe glory is something that comes and goes has no kavod. There's no kavod. There's no glory in something that's temporary. It comes and goes. Th- things, things with kavod are fixed. That, that star is fixed. That this, this, is, this is fixed. God's essence is fixed. These things, these things have kavod. Which brings me to this, the, the lie of the sacred object. The lie, of the, sac- the lie of the sacred object is that there's something out there that can make me like God. I can have peace and wholeness. And, 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 and think about it, your pastors. What was the first sacred object in the whole Bible? The fruit, right? Which is a frankly boring story. What, what, what sort of story goes, you're in a garden full of fruit and the centerpanism is a fruit? That's not even interesting. I'm in a garden full of fruit and the center antagonist in the story is a piece of fruit. What makes it interesting is the forbidding of it. So as soon as it's forbidden, it creates an obsessive desire for it. And so this obsessive desire, and the lie was what? Eat it and you could be like God, sacred object. And the questions around it was right, wrong, good, and evil. Listen, any question that is only right or wrong, that's a serpent question. That the serpent is a dichotomous right or wrong. If you organize your life around right or wrong, you'll ruin your life because you can always rationalize things that aren't necessarily wrong but are destructive. The question is not, is it right or wrong? The question is, is it wise? That's a much better question, all right? Is this, is this wholeness? So, so, the, so they eat this thing, whatever it was. So they eat the thing. And, and, and does it make them like God? No, it's a disaster. And you would think that they learned their lesson. But they don't. They get out of the situation, and what do they do? They immediately create another sacred object, the law. And the idea was, <clears throat> if I could keep all these rules, I'll be like God. But then Paul makes you aware of where you didn't keep a rule. And so that didn't work. And then they create another sacred object. They called it the Holy of Holies. And here's what they said. God's presence lives in there. And how do we make people obsessively desire God's presence? We forbid it right? You can't go in there or you'll die. Of course, there's no record of that ever happening. That Nebuchadnezzar in 2 Kings 25 walked into the Holy of Holies, stole the furniture and didn't die. Later, there's an Assyrian king who ransacked the whole place and he didn't die. In 63 BC, Pompey Magnus walked into the Holy of Holies and didn't die because there was an uprising. And he showed up and said, what's your problem? They said, our God lives in there. He said, I'm going to go talk to him then, right? They said, you can't. He said, why? They said, you'll die. He said, who's going to kill me? They said, God will. He goes, I tell you what. And he made a deal with the Jews. He said, I'm going to walk into the Holy of Holies. And if I die, all of Rome will convert to Judaism. But if I don't, you'll be confronted with the hole in your belief system. And he walked in there. And in Tacitus Histories, he wrote, I found it untenanted, uninhabited, and completely unimpressive. Which is why all four Gospels, what do they do? As soon as Jesus has died, what do they say? And the temple veil 
Torah, the whole point was, was that the presence of God was never contained there anyway. And they knew that. Ezekiel was seeing the presence of God in a Babylonian temple by the Kabar River. That God was always bigger than the sacred object. The idea is that there's something out there. What is the gospel? The gospel is a freedom from the sacred object. What is living for the glory of God? Living for the glory of God is anytime we repent of our need for the sacred object. That, that, that Jesus didn't die to, to fill the gap. Jesus died to, to expose the gap for what it was, obliterate it, and completely be present while our life got put back together. That, that Jesus isn't that which gives us meaning. Jesus is that which is present in us all back together. That is the gospel. The gospel, the gospel is anytime we repent of any need for something out here that will make us more like God. That, that, that living for the glory of God is living for something fixed because all sacred objects are fads. It's, it's, it's that. Let, let, let's, say, let's say it this way. Next slide. This is a, a story from Exodus about Moses' encounter with glory. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing I've spoken I'll do uh, for you. I found favor in my sight. For you found favor in my sight, and I, I know you by name. Now watch Moses' question. So, so he says, Show me your glory. Now watch God's response. The word is kavod. And watch God's response. I will make all my goodness pass before you. Different word entirely. In other words, you don't even know what you're at. You want to see my kavod? What? Who do you think you are? I'm not going to show you my kavod. I'll show you my goodness. My kavod, you can't handle it. You can't handle that. My goodness pass before you. will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to him, gracious, and mercy to him, I show mercy. Let's keep going. And he said, but you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you'll stand on the rock. And, and while my glory passes by. So he says, I'll show you my goodness now. But then later I'll hide you and I'll show you the backside of my glory. My, 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 my glory passes by. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand and you'll see my back. Like, like that, now I, I don't have time to go into the, the full teaching on this, but essentially the way the rabbis teach this is that Moses was seeing the backside of light because God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. That Moses was seeing the backside of light and the function of it. See, Hebrew people see function. Greek people think form. But it was against the law to anthropomorphize anything about God. You couldn't say the hand of God if you really meant a hand. That was illegal. Now, you could say the hand of God if you meant comforts, touches, th this kind of thing. So you couldn't say hand of God if you meant literal, but you could say hand of God if you meant meaning, right? So if you meant function, uh, the eyes of the Lord, like that's sight. So, so the function of light is to hold pictures. And so the way allowing Moses to see what he had been up to in the past, so, so, so that, that you can't see you can't handle where God's going, but you can fully see and give testimony to where he has been. So, so how, how do we live for the glory of God? We intentionally confront oppression. We repent for our need of the sacred object. We worship at the altar of the fixed instead of the altar of, of, of the fad. That, that we give te we're living for the glory of God anytime we give testimony to what God has done. Listen. If a doubter or an agnostic or a skeptic comes in and asks you, what's your evidence for resurrection? Don't use the Bible. They don't believe it anyway. The greatest evidence for resurrection is not the Bible. The greatest evidence for resurrection is a changed life. How do I know the spirit of God's working? Hey, let me tell you about this guy. This guy, this is where he was when I met him. And look where he is now. God is involved in his life. How do I know God's real? Look at that guy. Look at that guy and that girl and this one. It's, it's that. It's giving. To, let's say it this way. Next slide. 
So what did God do with his kavod? Evidently, he gave it away. Watch this. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. I do not want to get into the theology of this, but trust me, I have no reason to lie to a room full of pastors. You could go look this up in Hebrew, and it says he made him a little lower than Elohim. It says he made him a little lower than himself. Okay. Now, translators have trouble with that, so they translated heavenly beings, but the word is Elohim, which nowhere else is translated angels. It's he made him a little lower than himself, than God, Elohim. Um, yet you have made him a little lower than Elohim and crowned him with glory, kavod and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands and you put all things under his feet. So what did God do with his glory? Evidently, he gave it away to you and me. Evidently, God gives his glory away. And this is where we need to address doctrine. Because here's how doctrine works. You have a doctrine, that's a belief. If you technically believe correctly, the word would be orthodox. But then over here you have practice. And if you, if you, if you behave correctly, the technical word for that is orthopraxy, right? The question though is, is how do we get from orthodoxy to orthopraxy? And the fundamental bridge between the two is imagination. What's more important than what you believe is how you imagine that belief working out, right? Because the imagination is actually more, more powerful than the bullet point on the pamphlet, right? So, so like if we, if we believe that we're forgiven by the finished work of Jesus, orthodoxy, but in our imagination we see ourselves guilty and we feel guilty, then we will behave like guilty people, right? So, so the imagination has, has, has that kind of of power, which leads me to this observation about Trinity. All of us would believe that God is not one, but rather he is three distinct people acting as one, right? That's orthodox. The problem is not the doctrine. And, and by the way, if I can encourage you preachers for a second, right? When you're preaching to a room full of people, you are almost never addressing what they believe you're almost always addressing how they see what they believe playing out. So what seems like uh, you believe wrong is actually you're seeing wrong. You haven't offended their doctrine. You've offended the imagination around how that doctrine works out. And if you can change the way you address that to address that instead of the doctrine, you'll find yourself far less frustrated. So, so just as a side note help. Um, so, uh, so doctrine is trinity. But the problem with that is, is that all over this world, I have asked people I mean, like a thousand times because I got interested. And here's what I ask. When you pray, what do you picture? When you pray, what do you picture? I'm not going to do it because I don't want to run out of time. Top two answers by 98%. I mean, I'm serious. 98% of the time, I hear one of two things. I picture a guy on a throne. Oh, I picture a father. And then when I ask... What's the father like? They go, I don't know. Sort of, I don't know. He's just, I'm like, so he's like an ambiguous father. They say, yes, sort of like that. Well, that would be a great song, wouldn't it? You're an ambiguous father. It's who you are. It's who you, right? Now, here's the, here's the problem with that. It is possible to believe right and imagine wrong right? 
A guy on a throne is Zeus, Hermes, Apollo. It's pagan. The, the problem with, with seeing only a father is it's singular. The problem with both imaginations is they're singular. But we believe God is three in one. That God is a relationship between three. And that's exactly what you see in Scripture. You see somebody calling Jesus good. And he goes, don't call him by good except the father. But, but then you see the father exalting Jesus. But then you see Jesus saying, no, 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 that's the Holy Spirit's job. And then the Holy Spirit going, oh, no, 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 I'm going to point back to these two. So what you see in God is a flow of three. Remember the three-legged races? Remember how much coordination it took? Imagine with three people doing a six-legged race, how to, 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 have, to have three acting as one requires a perfect symbiosis of giving, receiving, honor, submission, when to step up, when to step back, when, when to promote, when to take your turn, when to do something for somebody else. When it's a per- and so the, in the 200s, they came up with a word for that, trinity. Before the 200s, it wasn't called trinity. That was, trinity was just a word to help us try to encapsulate and explain it. Before the 200s, it was called the perichoresis. Peri, perimeter, circle, choresis, choreograph, a, a circle dance. They, they, called it a divi- they, they called God the divine dance. The, 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 the when to step up, when to step back. And, oh, by the way, this it, is interesting. Every noun in Genesis 1 uh, that, that is translated God is plural. Every pronoun is plural. Every verb defining those things are plural. It's, it's, oh, it's, 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 it's this. So, so our doctrine is correct, but our imagination is pagan. And we wonder, wait a minute, hang, hang on a second. And here's what the ancients said, that, that in Genesis, that the divine relationship wanted a fourth dance partner. So they created you. So the earliest question was not, will you be forgiven? The earliest question was, will you dance? Will you, will you, will you get into that sort of thing? So if God gives his glory away, what are you meant to do with it? You're meant to give it back. It's, uh, to, to, just to be a functioning member of all creation, you've got to master the art of giving and receiving. You've got to breathe in and breathe out at roughly the same levels. If, if you eat three meals a day and never go to the toilet, you'll die or you'll wish you're dead. Because you, you, you've you got to receive and give, right? It's, it's, it's just, it's just that, that flow is built into everything, and we're not the exception to it. Let, let, let's say it this way. Ne- next slide. This is, uh, this is a passage from Jeremiah 2. Has a, this is such a great observation. I love this. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? In, in other words... If you were born in a certain place and were taught your whole life that something was God, even when confronted with obvious evidence that it has no power, it's very difficult to shift that. Like, that happened to the Jews. They were taught their whole life God lived in the Holy of Holies. You know, Nebuchadnezzar walks in there, steals the furniture. I, I, that is confronting, man. Confronting. When Pompey did it, confronting. They just couldn't shift it's true, if you're, and you can't help where you were born, if you're born learning your whole life something, it's very difficult to shift that, right? But watch what he says. But my people have changed their God. No, no, he doesn't. He, he acknowledges that they believe in the right God. But what have they changed? Their glory. My people changed their glory. So God gives his glory away, and what did they do? They changed it. it but my people changed their glory for that which does not profit. Now, check the language on this. Be appalled? Be shocked, be utterly desolate. This is like bad stuff, declares the Lord. For my, com- my people have committed two evils. So how do we shift our glory? How do, we, how do we change the glory he's given to us? Watch this, next slide. They forsook me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
In other words, here's how you change your glory. You start putting value in a sacred object that leaks out the bottom. Law-keeping leaks out the bottom. Law-keeping comes. Law-keeping goes. God stays. There's got, you have good days and bad days. Uh, money. Money comes. Money goes. God stays. P position. Positions come. Positions go. God stays. Whether your husband's happy with you, that comes, that goes. God, whether your wife is pleased, that comes, that goes. God's, whether the boss is, is happy, that comes, that, that goes. People's approval, that comes, that goes. It's, it's often not an issue of bad doctrine. It's often an issue of changing our glory, that we, have, we actually, without realizing it, have put our value in something that leaks out the bottom instead of keeping our value in something that never runs dry. That's the, that's the metaphor that they're using. It's, 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 this is freedom from the sacred object at a most radical, radical level. Um, now, in, 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 that, was, um, that, was, that was 53 minutes of me chatting, and, so, um, and you did well. I hope None of you are bored, are you? Nobody's bored? Some of that. I summarized it. What, what does it mean to live for the glory of God? Uh, let's do it this way. We're living for the glory of God anytime we intentionally confront oppression. So if you say our church lives for the glory of God, well, are you intentionally confronting oppression? Are we? Um, two, it's, 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 it's not losing sight of where his pay grade ends and mine begins. You will save yourself infinite energy if you just choose not cross pay grades. There's this great line in Luke 10, no, no, Luke 12, where a guy says, Jesus, would you make my brother divide the land differently? And remember Jesus' response? Man, I don't even know how to read that passage because it says, it, monotonely, it says, man, who made me arbiter over you? Or, man, who made me arbiter over you? Or, oh, man, um, I don't know how to read it. But here's what I do know. In the first century, it was not a rabbi's place to enter into judicial decisions. And he's asking Jesus to enter into a judicial world. That's not Jesus's, that was not in his pay grade. Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus says, it's not for me to decide judicial matters, but I, it is within a rabbi's purview to address matters of the heart. And I see covetousness here, so let's address that. So, so knowing, knowing when you're not meant to... If you engage in every single, you'll just burn out so fast. Like being conscious, uh, three, li living in a sense of awe in spite of not being able to be certain. That's living for the glory of God. To, to, the, 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 the enemy of faith is certainty. Listen to me, enemy of faith. Sight. It's not we walk by faith and not by doubt. It's what we walk by not by sight. That doubt, doubt actually can be an enhancer to faith because it causes questions to ask, that, Right? Um, four, we're, we're living for the glory of God when we declare the goodness of God. Like, what has he been up to in our world? N next slide. We're living for the glory of God when we repent from the need for the sacred object. That, that's, that's, that's a biggie. Six, we, we, we're living for the glory of God when we, we fill our life's value, our life's value uh, in something fixed instead of a temporary thing, a sealed jar instead of a leaky one. That's, that's living for the glory of God. So, so let's, let's go on. Let's, let's see if we can bring this around here. Next slide. So in Luke, it's God's doxa. In Greek, this word can mean something about how somebody thinks about something. 
So God's doxa doesn't change. Our doxa does. The question is, can we align ourselves back under God's doxa, his unchanging essence? Let's say it this way. Next slide. Glory to God in the highest is attained by humans embracing and living out of unchanging essence. Like, how have we treated the less fortunate? Has that been a value in our church? How have we ascribed glory to God? We have been crowned with kavod. What are we going to do about it? That's the idea. God gave us kavod away. What are you doing with it? Like, how are, we, how are we giving it back to God? Well, we give it back to God by intentionally confronting oppression, by repenting of the sacred object, by everything we just talked about. Next slide. Have we lost perspective on his small? Where have we embraced the gifted kavod? Or where have we, and it's okay to be honest about this, where have we embraced part of the gifted kavod and left the other part on the shelf because we did not want that responsibility? But God's calling us to go further. Um, where are we using it? How, how are we using it? It's important that we wrestle with these sort of things. Next slide. Will we reclaim the kavod that we were crowned with? Christianity is not about inaugurating new realities. It's about embracing what's always been true and seeing it and tapping into it. Um, where have we placed passion in the temporary instead of the fixed? And, and we do that. I mean, this is not something you'll get to the end of. It's like, wait a minute, hang on. Hang on, that's a temporary thing. I've traded my glory for something that's leaking out the bottom. And, and there's times, maybe you didn't have that language, but there are times we all get there. We're like, I, I, don't, I don't think there's an end to this. I, I don't think, I just don't, I don't think we get to the end of that. Where have we chased the sacred object and found it empty? Is there... Where, 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 did, where did we say, boy, if I could just get that OCM, then I'd feel, no, no. An OCM is a good thing to have, but if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. It's just, it's just you. If, if, if the OCM's great, unless it's a sacred object. Um, if I, oh, if I just got that pay raise, if I just got, if, oh, if I, if I just went from associate to senior pastor, then, then, then. Then, no, no, being a senior pastor is good, but if you're not enough without it, you'll be a disaster in it. It's, it's not, it's, it's, it's the sacred object. Is there, are there any more slides? I can't, I can't. Okay, good. So 1031, that was perfectly timed. Um, so um, I, I bless you guys. That, that, was, um, that was the session for your head. I hope, I hope your head is okay. And I, I, hope, I, hope, I, I, hope, I hope you're challenged and I hope it gave you a thought that maybe you can go wrestle with. Um, I, I bless you to be people. Um, you know what this is? I, I, I thought about this during worship. Um, I, I have taught at every region, um, every regional meeting in Queensland except this one till today. So this, this, is, this, is, this is like a, a thing. And, um, and, and I can't think of a better one. I, I, I love you guys and I'm for you. And I've journeyed with some of you and some of you I've never seen before, but I'm for you. And, and I bless you to be people who, who live for the glory of God and who build churches that are for the glory of God. How, how do you do that? Intentionally confront oppression. Keep a good tab on your place and his. Worship at the altar of the, of the fixed and never the fad. Repent of the, of the sacred object. And, it, 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 and before you do all that, give testimony every week to the goodness of God. What, what have you seen him do in, in your world? God has given you his kavod. What are you going to do about it? We'll have some morning tea now. Grace and peace. Stay tuned for another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church.